This is the Christian Circle Podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Welcome to a new episode of the Christian Circle Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. We have author Eli McCarthy who's going to talk to us about becoming non-violent peacemakers. So Eli, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. All right. Thank you, Pamela. It's wonderful to be with you all. I hope you everyone is doing well. Presently, uh, I live in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and um, part of my ministry is education, where I'm a professor at Georgetown University, and I teach in the theology uh, department as well as the justice and peace studies program. So I I get to teach uh, intro to Christian ethics and intro to peace studies, as well as um, nonviolent communication, and of course called just peace advocacy. Um, another part of my ministry right now is also um, with Pax Christi International. They have a project called the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative. This has been good all, going on since about 2016, particularly uh, really trying to uh, deepen uh, Catholic understanding and commitment to gospel nonviolence. Um, so I've been working on that, chairing the education, uh, global education committee that's been working with universities and colleges to develop courses on nonviolence and trainings on different nonviolent skills um, and so forth. And then um, finally, I do some advocacy work here in DC at the federal government level uh, with Franciscan Action Network. So I'm their Just Peace Fellow, which um, has been focused on the Ukraine-Russia war and now is kind of turning towards the uh, the war in the Holy Land. Um, so those are kind of three main things I do. And then I have a local nonprofit called the DC Peace Team, um, which offers trainings in different nonviolent skills like nonviolent communication, bystander intervention, unarmed civilian protection deployments, as well as restorative justice circles, trauma awareness, and anti-racism. And then we deploy these unarmed protection units to uh, political demonstrations where there might be a counter protest or violence, uh, but also neighborhood situations. So we call them community safety units, and they're there to kind of um, build trust in the community and de-escalate conflicts that happened in uh, particular areas that were asked to come and, come and support. So that's a little, I guess, summary of my present ministry work. So I actually found you because um, you wrote an article, I think, about peace building initiatives with regards to Ukraine. And you've written a lot of um, articles, I think, in the recent past about, uh, you know, all these things that are currently happening uh, in the world. So you also wrote a book about this. So what is the difference? Uh, what is, first of all, a peacemaker? And what is a nonviolent peacemaker? And what's the difference between the two? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, when I wrote that book, I was um, kind of working on my dissertation, basically, um, at the Graduate Theological Union in, in Berkeley, California. And what I had 
I had gone to do my um, doctoral work kind of out of the experience of 9-11 here in the U.S. in 2001 and then the Iraq war kicking off a couple of years later in 2003. And I kept, you know, hearing political and even religious leaders saying, you know, we, we've we got to, um, in order to get peace, we need to go to war. And in order to get peace, we need to, you know, deploy more um, military strategies and weapons and so forth. And, and I wasn't, um, I was a little taken aback by that. And um, I decided I wanted to kind of, you know, learn more about the Christian tradition on peacemaking and, you know, Jesus's call, blessed are the peacemakers. And, you know, as I did that um, from about 2004 through 2009 in Berkeley, um, you know, it became more and more clear to me that Jesus's peacemaking was uh, a nonviolent love of friends and enemies and that it was a call to generate uh, a kind of character or a set of habits in our daily life mm -hmm. so that we could be become nonviolent peacemakers. It wasn't just a tactic or a strategy or even like a rule against violence, but it was about what kinds of persons can we become. Um, so when I think of peacemaker in that context, it's really synonymous with nonviolent peacemaker. Um, I see them as one and the same, but uh, in the context of you know the religious tradition here in the US and uh, some of our policies and so forth, it, it seemed that too many leaders and others uh, considered that violence could be a way of peacemaking. And I wanted to kind of challenge that and be clear about that, that, you know, if we try to be violent peacemakers, um, we might dominate somebody or a group in a, in a moment, but we end up planting the seeds of bitterness and often hatred and certainly trauma that's going to generate future harm and cycles of, of violence. So that's why I use the term nonviolent peacemaker in that, that particular book. Um, but it's certainly rooted in the way of the encounter with Jesus and the way of Jesus's love for all. And I guess what you're saying does make a lot of sense because there have been um, places where, I mean, the violent methods have, have kind of sown seeds of hatred and bitterness and nobody really remembers the success of it all, but they remember all you know, all the destruction instead. So I I, I see your point. Um, and I, I, I get that even before uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross, he says, you know, he prays for people to all be one. And he says, Father, make them all one. So what steps do we take to become peacemakers, given what's happening in the world? And especially when everybody wants you to pick a side. And if you don't pick a side, uh, if you're neutral, um, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, thank you, Pamela. There are some significant challenges you know we face in our kind of daily life with the folks sometimes that we live with or we work with or study with and then these larger um, conflicts across countries and regions um, let me kind of get into that just by um, kind of describing um, 
nonviolence or nonviolent peacemaking as this positive reverence for dignity and life. So not as an, a negative or an absence of something, but a positive reverence for dignity and life, as well as the constant effort to avoid dehumanization and participation in other types of violence, such as structural violence and cultural violence. So when it comes to like, you know, the question of picking a side and so forth, you know, I my sense is that nonviolent peacemaking is certainly not about neutrality. It is a way of picking a side, but the the side that is picked is a side of of human dignity. So in terms of how to kind of uh, become such peacemakers or practices that cultivate this virtue of nonviolent peacemaking, um, there are, you know, I think there are like seven key ones that I identify in the book, but um, just to kind of name some particular things, you know, I think uh, prayer is so critical and it's, mm. it's not, um, any kind of prayer necessarily um you know there are some people who use prayer to pray for victory and yeah. to pray their adversaries uh, are converted or they realize they're wrong um this is a kind of prayer that jesus taught us to you know pray for our adversaries pray for us, um that we may we may be one that we may sense our shared childhood of God, the one who creates us all. Um, a second really important practice, I think, is attention and care for those on the margins, mm. those who are left out, excluded, ignored, devalued, whether those are particular people in our families or in our neighborhoods and communities or around the world as we, you know, notice and attend to refugees and and migrants and so forth. And that attention and care also includes our common home, um, the earth, the environment as the place that we we share as part of God's creation. Um, a third practice is to kind of consider conflict um, as an opportunity, an opportunity for growth where we can become better people. We can deeper our understanding, we can grow in empathy, we can uh, cultivate new relationships. So it's not something we need to kind of run from or be afraid of, but it's also not something that needs to be dominated where we possess somebody else or destroy somebody else or allow others to destroy someone for us. So part of considering conflict as an opportunity for growth is uh, a practice that's called nonviolent communication or sometimes compassionate communication, where it entails becoming more aware of the feelings uh, of ourself and the other we might be in conflict with, but also the deeper needs that are behind the conflict. So usually what we say or what we do are strategies to get different needs met. And some of those needs can be things like respect or acknowledgement or belonging mm -hmm. or acceptance or being seen or being heard or even needs for clarity, support, safety, and boundaries. 
So nonviolent communication helps us to, invites us to become more aware of these needs so then we can make uh, proposals or identify strategies that actually get the needs met and thus really kind of transform the conflict. Another part of seeing conflict as an opportunity is um, really leaning into rehumanizing the other person. Mm. There's a lot of violence and harm occurs through different steps or process of dehumanizing another person. Mm. Um, so this practice of rehumanizing, recalling that they are also children of God, yeah. that there is good within them, even if they may have done something harmful to us or others. And there is potential for um, a transformation. Mm. Some of the other practices that you know, that I think are also important is acknowledging responsibility for harm. And, you know, this is in our interpersonal relationships, but also in larger uh, international conflicts. And that willingness to acknowledge responsibility for harm can show up in practices of uh, trauma healing and restorative justice, such as circles or truth and reconciliation commissions. Uh, an additional practice is training, you know, just as we train to become maybe good athletes or good doctors or lawyers, um, it's important to train ourselves in nonviolent skills. So beyond, uh, in addition to nonviolent communication, there are key skills like bystander intervention and de-escalation skills, um, mentioned restorative justice, uh, also nonviolent resistance, right? Like how to uh develop a strategic campaign to resist uh systemic injustice and unjust policies um unarmed civilian protection is a really emerging practice there are peace teams uh here in dc but also in portland and the meta peace team in michigan the nonviolent peace force is the largest organization that does this in war zones like south sudan and iraq and others uh, done it in colombia like really training ourselves in these skills so that we can be more equipped and have a, a more fruitful impact on some of the conflicts. So, you know, one of the kind of ethical approaches that I draw on in this context is a thing called a just peace framework. And um, this is really an attempt to to kind of, as the Psalms say, justice and peace shall kiss. And that, you know, the shalom theme that comes out of the Hebrew scriptures, this wholeness of peace. So a just peace framework challenges us to engage conflict constructively, uh, second, to break cycles of violence rather than justifying violence or war, and third, to build more sustainable peace. So there are particular norms within each of those um, categories. And, um, you know, it really challenges us to address root causes of our conflicts um, and to advocate more for things like diplomacy, uh, investments in restorative justice and unarmed protection and nonviolent resistance, as well as nonviolent civilian-based defense, which is um, growing in some countries, but we could do a lot more to research and train uh, our communities here in the U.S. to um, have those skills and to reduce 
our investments in military spending. So I'll leave it there for now. Well, it actually sounds like it requires a lot of training and effort. It's not that you suddenly one day wake up as a community and say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to be a peacemaker today. It's going to require a lot more time. It's going to require effort. It's going to require training, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like the spiritual journey, right? We, yeah. we train ourselves and getting to sense God's presence and the spirits work in our lives. And, mm -hmm. and that takes a form formative process of yeah. scripture and worship and, um, being part of a community and serving those in need and so forth. So what is the single most powerful weapon that we can wield as a peacemaker? And if somebody wants to start today, either with themselves or with a community, where do they start? Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating question. Um, you know, I think in short, I would say the most powerful weapon is love. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like depends on different circumstances. And I'll, I'll tell you a story to kind of illustrate it a little bit. But um, your other question about where do we where do we start? You know, I think um, that really depends on where a person is right now, right? If mm -hmm. they've um, if they're just getting curious about this, then you know. Um, prayer is really important and prayer is important for all of us and caring for those on the margins. If people have been doing things like that for a while, then, you know, these trainings and different nonviolent skills and, and advocacy for some of these nonviolent peace building processes. But let me share um, a story. This is about Antoinette Huff. She was a bookkeeper at a middle school elementary school in georgia this happened around 2013 and it was the beginning of a school day and all the kids were in their classrooms and the folks in the main office were all at their desk getting started and uh, a person kind of sneaks in the front door and comes to the into the office and he had a big black bag on his shoulders and it had all these weapons in it. And he had a long gun in his hand and he points it at everybody in the office. And he says, listen, listen, we're, we're all going to die today. We're all going to die. And they start, you know, ducking and screaming. Mm -hmm. and a few seconds later, the police pull up out in the parking lot and he goes to the kind of the end of the aisle and, uh, points his gun out the window and they exchange fire for a few seconds. But meanwhile, Antoinette Tuff is in that office area and she's kind of ducking down. And she says one of the first things she did was she centered herself. And for her, her tradition was to say a short prayer. And it was out of the prayer that she said she no longer saw this person as a, as a monster, but at least as another another human and the gunfire kind of dissipates and he uh, comes back to the main office and he's kind of pacing back and forth and he sees her and he says, you, you get on the phone, get on the phone, call 911. Tell him I want the media here. I want the helicopters. I want everyone to see this. Come on now, now. So she gets on the phone and she starts to tell them this and she's really nervous and afraid and 
But she notices that he then gets on his own cell phone and he's talking to somebody. And she kind of picks up that that other person is concerned about him mm-hmm. and cares about him. So she says this out loud to him. She says, hey, hey, it sounds like that person really, really cares about you. They're really concerned about, you know, what's going on. And she keeps trying to say this. And he's like, shut up, shut up. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And she keeps kind of unpacking that again in different ways, trying to distract him. And and finally, he just says, okay, okay. Like, I, I didn't take my medicine this morning. All right. I didn't take it. Just leave me alone. Leave me alone. So she gets back on the 911 call and she says to the the, uh, the operator, she says, listen, you got to tell the police not to shoot him, not take him to jail. He's got to go to the hospital. You got to take him to the hospital. All right. All right. And she realizes like if he goes outside or she got him to go outside, he would get shot right away. So she tells him, she says, I will I'll walk outside with you. I'll walk outside with you. I'll make sure they take you to the hospital. Okay, I'll make sure. And he just kind of waves her away and says, no, no, leave me alone. Leave me alone. So she tries another approach and she says, hey, you know, we we all we all go through things. We all go through things like I have this really I have this really hard time with my divorce and my husband treated me really badly and he did this and that. And I have a hard time raising my son who's got ability challenges. And at one point the guy says, well, your husband was messed up. He shouldn't have done that. And she keeps kind of going on about her struggles and her difficulties. Mm -hmm. And finally he says to her, he says, okay, okay, just, just stop. Just like get, get on the intercom. Okay. Get on the intercom. And tell the kids that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for scaring them. Okay, just tell them that. Tell them that. So she does this. And she's not sure how it's going to play out. But she's noticing a bit of a shift. So she says to him, she says, listen, listen. We're not going to hate you. We're not going to hate you. Uh, she says, I'm, I'm proud of you. And I, I care about you. I do. I care about you. I love you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then she goes even deeper into her own vulnerability. And she tells him the story about when she was literally one or two steps away from taking her own life. Mm -hmm. And it was in that vulnerability that he finally says to her, my name is... Michael Mm -hmm. and she gets him to then lay down his weapon on the counter and tells the police they can come in and they come in with all this hostility and guns and aggressiveness but nobody gets shot and you could imagine if she had come at him with similar hostility and aggressiveness Mm -hmm. her or kids or police might have been shot or killed so that's kind of a short summary of the story. It was turned into a documentary called Faith Under Fire. Mm. And um, I think it really illustrates the power of deep uh, abiding love and, and trust in, in the God of love mm. and, and the way of Jesus' nonviolence. And mm. 
she didn't know how it was going to turn out, but she entered that, that process, that, uh, that way of mercy and, and it, it showed through and they all made it through. And that requires a lot of faith, right? I mean, to put aside what, what uh, is happening to you, or even if you're in the midst of extreme desolation or you're in pain, put that aside and allow or be kind or see the other person as equal to you. I think that that requires a lot of faith, a lot of trust, a lot of hope, and the spirit actually working in you. Yeah, most most definitely. Most definitely. What last advice do you have for anybody who's interested in becoming a peacemaker? Well, um, you know, I think as as Christians particularly, we have an amazing opportunity uh, model in Jesus. And it is so, so critical that we share that model that Jesus Jesus's way is a way of nonviolent love of friends and enemies and mm -hmm. to to teach that to our, our our children to teach that in our uh, Christian and Catholic schools and our Christian and Catholic universities and to model it in the way that we engage conflict as best we can we will we will certainly fall short and and lean away from nonviolent love at times but um this is where the openness to acknowledge harm and to lean into forgiveness and the broader kind of process of redemption is, is so important and, and beautiful. So, you know, I hope um, that as Christians, we take this opportunity and this call uh, deeply into our hearts and really just uh, share and teach the way of Jesus is nonviolent so that we can collectively become more and more uh, nonviolent peacemakers and um, participate in the power of love really transforming um, our world. So it was great. I mean, that was a great story. And it was really nice hearing about all the different things about being a peacemaker. I mean, to be honest, it's the first time I'm hearing about a number of these things, um, even the organization that you mentioned. So thank you so much, Eli, for talking to us. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or speak to you, uh, or even be part of the organization that you are part of, um, FAN, uh, where can they reach out to you and contact you? Yeah, I'd be happy to walk with others in this process. Uh, my email is esm52 at georgetown.edu. And um, the one of the organizations was the Franciscan Action Network. Um, you can Google that. And also the, the DC Peace Team uh, org is uh, another organization. Um, where you can connect and kind of participate in a lot of the great work that many, many folks on in those groups are are doing together. Okay. And where can they find your book? And are you on social media? Um, yes, yes. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram uh, and X. Um, and the book, Becoming Nonviolent Peacemakers, um, you know, you can find that in, you know, on Amazon and so forth. But the publisher is 
It's called WIPF, W-I-P-F, and Stock, S-T-O-C-K. Um, I think it's their Pickwick publications. Um, so yeah, that would be what to look up uh, to be able to order the book. All right, great. So thank you so much for taking time um, during this busy weekend for talking to us. Uh, thank you so much for being on our podcast and we wish you all the very best for the future. Thank you, Eli. Thank you, Pamela, for the invitation. It was great to meet you and thanks for um, uh, facilitating this podcast. It's so It's so valuable and important.